pastor was saying that, you know, it's tempting. Some churches even cancel church the Sunday after Christmas. Um, and uh, he was saying it's a great opportunity with a smaller, quieter crowd to be reminded that we come to church not for a show, but because God is the living God, and this is the place where we worship him together. Um, and that, that was really a helpful reminder for me. Um, my, my family is down in Atlanta. That's where we've been um, for the past few days. I'll, I'll be here working for a few days, and I'll go back to Atlanta to go to a conference for a few days. Um, but I, just being around my kids for the past few days, watching them, I'm, I'm ready for normal life to set back in. I don't know if you feel that way. Um, Christmas is wonderful, and it's not over. Christmas is a 12-day feast. Um, that's why that song goes that way, and you should enjoy it and all that. But I don't know if my kids need any more gifts from any other person. Um, there needs to be some reality setting in for my younger children especially. They keep asking when they can open more things. And it's like, never, possibly, possibly never. Um, we don't need any more sugar or any more gifts. Um, fortunately, there are people in my life who are much more adept at feasting and celebration than me. This morning, we're going to be uh, moving with the lectionary again. That'll be true this week and next week as well. Uh, and then the next week, um, I'm going to start a series that'll be about three and a half months on the book of Revelation. Um, which I am terrified about, but um, I've, in, in the 10 years of regular preaching, never preached through Revelation, and it's in the Bible, so I feel like I have to, and that's why we're going to do it. And as I've been studying up for that series and getting ready for that, I'm actually excited to jump in it with you. Um, it's a weird and wonderful book that is, that is good for us. Um, so that'll be in a couple weeks. We'll start that. This morning, we're going to start in Isaiah 63, read a few verses there, and then we'll be in the book of Hebrews and then the book of Matthew. So this is Isaiah 63, 7 through 9. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who do not deal falsely. And he became their savior. And all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all Carry them all the days of old. Now from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, 
Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now from the Gospel of Matthew. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. Now when they, the wise men, the magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called Nazarene. You pray for us. God, we thank you for your word that speaks to us still. We thank you that we're here to hear it. And Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear it. We pray that our hearts would be soft and that we would be surprised by your majesty. We pray, God, that the power of your incarnation would win us over to the very depths. We trust that you'll do this to the praise of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our passages today in in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Matthew, speak to what Isaiah prophesied of, about the, the steadfast love of the God of Israel for His people, the covenant love of the God of Israel for His people, And uh, this part of the story, of the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, is is maybe the part that you and I would be most likely to skip over or or to forget. 
um, because it's not like when you're setting up the little nativity scenes in your houses that you're thinking, I can't wait to tell the part about the slaughter of the innocents. Um, but in the days of Christmas, um, this is its own particular feast day. If you're looking at all the feasts that fall within this larger feast season of Christmas, there is this commemoration of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem and the region around it. Um, this bloody, unjust event that for Matthew's gospel provides for us a kind of alarming indication of where this whole story is headed, this bloody slaughter of innocent people. And then we have this word from the writer of Hebrews, from the author of Hebrews, saying that Jesus takes up this high priestly vocation that unexpectedly makes him, the God of the universe, called our brother, so that he can be a high priest for us that is there with us in the midst of temptation. This, uh, these two passages speak of the surprising nature of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, the way that the world operates is decidedly different than the way that Jesus operates in the world. And most of the objections that people will have to the preaching, the ministry, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that he doesn't work the way that they would like him to work. And of course, Matthew's gospel uh, particularly is, is careful in teaching us how the irony of Jesus' misidentification leads Israel to fail to be Israel and the way that they're called to be Israel. So in the gospel of Matthew, you have this terrible, terrible irony that Jesus is born in David's city from the line of David, the rightful occupant of the seat of David in Jerusalem. But there is an unlawful, there is a false king who sits on Jerusalem's throne, who comes after him and forces him, chases him out to the place where Israel had escaped from. Matthew overlays the life of Jesus over the story of Israel to help us see that Jesus himself becomes the true and faithful Israelite who re-embodies what Israel failed to do. So that's why in the Gospel of Matthew, he's careful to help us see that Jesus goes to Egypt to flee death, just like Israel did in the book of Genesis, and just like the prophets spoke of Israel and said, out of Egypt my son is called, Jesus himself goes to Egypt and will be called out of Egypt. And quickly in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will find himself in the desert, tempted for 40 days, just as Israel went into the desert for 40 years because of their failure to resist temptation. This is what Matthew will do in his gospel, to lay over Jesus' story, over the top of the story of Israel. And here you have this faithful son of David, completely powerless in Matthew chapter 2. And as the beginnings of his life are marked by misunderstanding and rejection and ultimately blood and suffering and death. And we know, because we've read all of the gospel, that this will not be the only time that this will be true of his life. But it is an indication of the ultimate end, the death 
of Jesus, where he will once again be killed by an unjust ruler, though he himself is one of the innocent ones, and he will shed his blood in the city of David. Once again, the powers that be refusing to see and acknowledge his own rightful claim to the seat of power. This is what people will will wrestle with Jesus about, wanting Jesus to, to fulfill his vocation with the power and control that they so desperately desire. The kingdoms of this world operate on the basis of who has power and control. And it's, it's easy to see it in the way that the world works even today. That people with power and control don't generally seek to give away power and control, but instead seek to protect it and to hold it within themselves, often with the explanation that they have good reason and good motivation and good desires to do so. If I am in control, I can ensure that I am safe. And if I am in control, if I am in power, I can make sure that the good things happen and not the bad things. We see it on massive geopolitical scales, and we see it in our own lives. If I can pursue power and control in the name of good, then good things will happen. And Hebrews speaks to how the kingdoms of this world operate. As you hear it in Hebrews chapter 2, that the power of the grave leads people to fear. And fear of death brings a kind of dominion and power and domination and enslavement that Jesus came to deliver people from. So in the Gospel of Matthew, the people of Israel are regularly, fairly regularly, coming to, to Jesus and saying, is now the moment when you will take control and take power and kick out the Romans? Will you be the one to seize power so that we can get what we want? Is basically their argument. And Jesus relentlessly sets aside what they understand as what power should look like and refuses the throne. And I think the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2 helps us see the kind of people whom Jesus will love most dearly. And it is the, the innocent ones who are slaughtered. It is the children of Bethlehem and Judea who are killed by the powers that be that Jesus repeatedly aligns himself with. And again, this is not out of character with the God of Israel. If, if Israel has been attentive to the Old Testament, if they're attentive to the Torah, to the prophets, they will hear this again and again and again, that God names himself as the one who is on the side of the weak and the powerless, the sojourner, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. He repeatedly names himself that way in Deuteronomy. The prophets come and remind Israel of that. Do not be tempted, Israel to be obsessed with your thirst for power and control, but instead the God of Israel, who is himself the king of Israel, who has all things in his control, 
He, his eyes are on the weak. His eye is on the innocent, the dispossessed. And Israel fails to listen to this word of warning as often as you and I do. Because I'll tell you the truth. In my life, what I am often craving in any given moment is control. I want control in relational dynamics. When my wife and I are at odds, it is often because purely boiled down, I want my way and she wants her way. And our, our disputation, loud or soft, comes down to that argument. I should have my way. And neither one of us will look at each other and say, what I want is to crush you and to dominate you. At various moments, I may feel that way. I may. But if I had to explain why do I want my way and why does she want her way, my rationale would be because my way is the best way. It will be best for me. It will be best for you. It will be best for our whole family. My way is the best way. And this is really me being generous to you. You should want my way and give me control because it will be better for you. So give me what I want. And of course, sometimes, I would argue many times, I am right. My way is the best way. But ultimately, when I'm in that moment of disputation and arguing and confrontation with my wife, my desires are more tangled up in me getting the right way than it is in the well-being and the betterment of those around me. I can, sl- I can just very quietly and easy shift tracks from I want the best thing for everyone to give me my way. It is not hard for us to believe that this would be true. If you're honest and you examine yourself, it is easy to see how we crave control. And we put on that craving these these appearances of wanting to do good. And we see that in our lives individually. We see that in the way that things play out Globally, politically, organizationally. Humans who get together and are generally in their individual lives bent on power and control, when they get together, they don't suddenly become better at releasing power and control. They just band together and say, fine, let's us have power and control. And when people are bent on getting their way and protecting what is theirs, doing what is good for them and their family. Who suffers? It is the powerless, the weak, the dispossessed. There's a way to see Herod's madness as my own madness. Herod kills children, which is unimaginably awful. 
But it is not a far step from me to Herod. Because all Herod has to do to rationalize that move is to say, my throne belongs to my family and to protect my children's heritage. I will not allow someone else to take my throne and I will ensure that my son has a good life. When you make that decision in your heart and you also have at your hand a sword, it is not hard for the innocent to be slaughtered. Now, you and I can say, I've never slaughtered anyone. I I hope that we can all rise to the bar of never having slaughtered someone. Great. But what Jesus will insist on is that in your heart, you are not that far from Herod. And Jesus will refuse to allow people the, the comfort of looking at themselves and saying, well, at least I'm not them. What Jesus will do is present himself and say, but are you me? And the answer is, no. My, my goodness does not rise to the goodness of Jesus' goodness. All I can do is point at those around me and say, at least I'm not them. And what Jesus will announce is that the kingdom of God is better than that. The kingdom of God will not allow that standard of, at least I'm not them. The story of the the slaughter of the innocents, one, is a comfort for us. Because what it tells us is that God is not far removed from you when you yourself are powerless and under the thumb of a powerful enemy. And that enemy could take all different kinds of shapes and sizes. It could be a boss who unjustly persecutes you, who unjustly keeps you from promotion or advancement or just makes your life miserable for no good reason. God sees people who are neglected and have no power and and was born like one of them. You, You could be somebody who is under the thumb of a powerful enemy named cancer or any other kind of disease, an enemy that you cannot fend off yourself. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem with no power to be with you under the thumb of cancer or some other disease. You may look at the the world, the news, and see this people group or that people group who suffer bloody death or fear for their lives or dispossession or homelessness, and you don't have to say, Nothing can be done in this world. The world is just like this. This is how things will be. The the power have power, and the powerless have no power, and thus will the world always be. It enables you to look at the way that the world is and say that the God of heaven and earth has entered into the story and refused that narrative himself. 
And in His own incarnation, He has spoken to the powers of this world and said, you do not get to have the last word. So the the slaughter of the innocents is a word of comfort to you and I. But the slaughter of the innocents is also a word of accusation to you and I. It is a word of conviction. What humans have always craved, what you and I crave, is what Herod craved when he sent the order to murder the children. And you and I may not murder children, but you and I can think of probably a long list of examples where we have trampled on those around us in pursuit of our own power and control and security. And those offenses can range from invisible. You have manipulated and lied your way through a relationship that most people cannot even discern, but you know that you have pushed people aside or violated them so that you have power and control and relationship. You've lied about someone, misspoken about someone, led the concert of laughter against someone. You have cut yourself off from someone to maintain power and control and relationship. Because fundamentally, Herod's sin is the sin of all humanity. The absolute desire to sit on the throne. You and I both crave to sit on the throne. What Matthew's gospel will tell us here and through the rest of the story is that God will refuse to allow pretenders on the throne. He will unseat Herod and his son, and he will surely unseat you and I. So you and I should read the slaughter of the innocents And we should ask the question, how am I like Herod? How have I taken up the sword? But Hebrews gives us a good word. Hebrews tells us that Jesus becomes one of us clothed in weakness, clothed in powerlessness, to become for us a great high priest. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, understands what it means to be tempted. He understands what it means to hear the temptation to grasp for the throne inappropriately. And so when you hear the story of Jesus, when you see him ushered away in the midst of violence and bloodshed, when you see him in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew refusing to put his hands on the throne inappropriately, you can know that you have a better high priest than than yourself. You don't have somebody who has looked around and said, well, at least I am not them. You have a brother in the high priesthood who has superseded and passed every test that you and I and Israel and Herod have ever failed. 
And we know that actually the God who has seemingly divested himself of all power and control and allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross has allowed the powers of death and fear and death of the devil to unempty every bullet that it has on him. And he has spread his arms wide and embraced the slaughter and has himself defeated it. What Paul says is the powers of this world have been disarmed by him and have been led in open shame through the city streets. Because this God who has taken upon himself every wound that our desperate desire for control and fear of death would lead us in has overcome every weapon we could throw at him. So when you and I are in the midst of sin, when you and I are reaching for the sword to dominate and control, and we feel temptation warring over us and knowing that we have capitulated again to Herod's sin, we have for us a great high priest who is understanding and who is merciful. Because even in our sin against him, God is not like the kingdoms of this world. Even in that moment when we acknowledge that we have failed him and violated him and offended against his throne, he is not like Herod, who pulls the sword of execution and gives you and I what we deserve. But he is, as Hebrews says, eager to give mercy. Jesus is so much better than anyone else in the story. Jesus rises above the things that afflict us and drive us to madness as they've driven Herod to madness. Jesus comes and brings a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus has heard the temptations to grasp for power and control and in the name of doing something good, to seat himself inappropriately on the throne, but has instead entered in our own sufferings, as the writer of Hebrews says, so that he somehow becomes the one who sanctifies us as he experienced in some way sanctification of suffering. You have in Jesus somebody who outshines you in your worst moments and in your very best moments, who will offer to you mercy even when you speak to him of your treason. When you and I can read this story and see that we would slaughter the innocents too. God, who is on the side of the innocents, is himself the one who is ultimately the innocent one. He will surely rescue and deliver you from the enemies that afflict you within and without. The the gospel presents us with a comfort and a conviction this morning. And both of those things point to Jesus. This morning in this Christmas season, do you see Jesus? Do you consider him? in the humiliation of his incarnation? 
Do you worship him in the exaltation of his resurrection and his ascension? Will you cede control this morning? Confess your need for power and let his own power be your shield, your protector, and your own salvation. Will you see Jesus this morning presented to you? And when you lay down Herod's sword and instead throw yourself at your brother, the great high priest, and receive from him mercy once again. This is the gift of the incarnation of God for the people of God, the steadfast love, the covenant love that God has for his people, Israel. He has raised up a horn of salvation for you. Will you grab hold of it this morning and put yourself into his hands? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word that still speaks to us with power. We are ultimately so grateful that you are not like us. And Father, we confess to you that that life is difficult, that ultimately what we'd like so many times is just to get our own way, even with you. Our prayers reflect that. But you are a patient and good Father. We pray that you would help us to see clearly. We pray that you'd help us to trust you. That when we see it on an individual or a mass scale, the trampling of the innocent, the powerless, help us to trust you that you are a God who sees it and hears it and will not allow it to stand, but instead has thrown himself into the story of humanity. And would you help us to hear the conviction of the Scriptures, that we too are ones who grasp for power and control, that we are tempted by the ways of this world and have reached for the implements of this world, to do life like the kingdoms of this world. Help us to see that you are our great high priest who understands this temptation. And even in this temptation, you can offer us mercy. We confess to you, God, that we have sinned against you in this way, in Herod's way, and many others. Help us to turn to you quickly to receive your mercy. We're so grateful that you are not like anybody else, Jesus. You are way, way, way better. Help us not to to plead for you to be in a box that is more like us. Blow open the doors of our hearts and draw us deeper and deeper into the life of your kingdom, into the reign of Jesus who sits on the throne now and forever and ever. Amen.